Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're listening to The New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's my delight to welcome you here. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from The New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine, and we discuss that too. And I'm thrilled to say that my guest today is Robert Pinsky. Robert Pinsky, I really don't have to remind you, served as the Poet Laureate of the United States from 1997 to 2000. He's been a champion of poetry ever since and one of the great poets of the era. Welcome, Robert Pinsky. A real pleasure to be here, Paul. Now, the poem you've chosen to read is by Elizabeth Bishop. It's called At the Fish Houses. It's a poem that happens to have been published by The New Yorker in The New Yorker in 1947. It's become a classic, I suppose. I think it is a, a great poem. Whatever I mean by a great poem, this exemplifies it. And it's a great poem that doesn't telegraph its greatness right from the outset. It seems almost wandering and sort of descriptive and like a piece of music, it just accelerates and gets more and more intense. And by the end, it's probably not only the loftiest passage in all of Elizabeth Bishop's writing, it's one of the loftiest passages in modern poetry. And you don't know how she gets aloft because a lot of it is charmingly miscellaneous. But since we have a moment, since we have you here, you use the term great poem. Are there any characteristics that all great poems have, or is each great in its own way? For me, the greatness has to partly be audible. And uh, that last line, when she says, since our knowledge is historical, flowing and flown, and the mind almost thinks it's the same verb, and it's two different verbs, to flow and to fly, and it's the sort of things that happens in Shakespeare. There are many excellent and wonderful writers. Shakespeare reaches some other level. And that's the way I feel about the final words of this poem, which is this flowing and flown. You hear it, and then something inside you gasps at what you've just heard because it involves so much intellectual wit along with just sounding terrific. 
You know, I, it occurs to me just, uh, I'm reminded of the fact that you probably met Elizabeth Bishop along the way. Yes, she once had Thanksgiving dinner at my house. I was in, uh, she was very nice to my children. I have an Elizabeth daughter. There was some very charming stuff about that. And uh, her last appearance in public was at the book party for my book, uh, An Explanation of America. It was on a Saturday. And in the Boston Sunday Globe, Robert Taylor's book column said, Elizabeth Bishop came and left early. And by the time I read those words on Sunday, Elizabeth died. She went to that party. She went home and got ready to go out to dinner and died, uh, what they call a good death. So there is that odd, it was the last time she was out in public, was at my book party. May I ask you to read Robert Pinsky at the Fish Houses by Elizabeth Bishop? Truly a pleasure. At the Fish Houses. Although it is a cold evening, down by one of the fish houses an old man sits netting, his net in the gloaming almost invisible, a dark purple-brown, and his shuttle worn and polished. The air smells so strong of codfish, it makes one's nose run and one's eyes water. The five fish houses have steeply peaked roofs, and narrow cleated gangplanks slant up to storerooms in the gables for the wheelbarrows to be pushed up and down on. All is silver, the heavy surface of the sea, swelling slowly as if considering spilling over, is opaque, but the silver of the benches, the lobster pots and masts scattered among the wild jagged rocks is of an apparent translucence like the small old buildings with an emerald moss growing on their shoreward walls. The big fish tubs are completely lined with layers of beautiful herring scales, and the wheelbarrows are similarly plastered with creamy iridescent coats of mail with small iridescent flies crawling on them. Up on the little slope behind the houses, set in the sparse bright sprinkle of grass, is an ancient wooden capstan, cracked, with two long bleached handles and some melancholy stains like dried blood where the ironwork has rusted. The old man accepts a lucky strike. He was a friend of my grandfather. We talk of the decline in the population and of codfish and herring while he waits for a herring boat to come in. There are sequins on his vest and on his thumb. He has scraped the scales, the principal beauty, from unnumbered fish with that black old knife, the blade of which is almost worn away. Down at the water's edge, at the place where they haul up the boats, up the long ramp descending into the water, Thin silver tree trunks are laid horizontally across the gray stones, down and down, at intervals of four or five feet. Cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, element bearable to no mortal, to fish and to seals. One seal, particularly, I have seen here evening after evening. He was curious about me. He was interested in music, like me, a believer in total immersion, so I used to sing him Baptist hymns. I also sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He stood up in the water and regarded me steadily, moving his head a little. Then he would disappear, then suddenly emerge almost in the same spot with a sort of shrug, as if it were against his better judgment. 
cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, the clear, gray, icy water. Back behind us, the dignified, tall firs begin, bluish, associating with their shadows. A million Christmas trees stand waiting for Christmas. The water seems suspended above the rounded gray and blue-gray stones. I have seen it over and over, the same sea, the same slightly indifferently swinging above the stones, icily free above the stones, above the stones and then the world. If you should dip your hand in, your wrist would ache immediately, your bones would begin to ache, and your hand would burn as if the water were a transmutation of fire that feeds on stones and burns with a dark gray flame. If you tasted it, it would first taste bitter, then briny, then surely burn your tongue. It is like what we imagine knowledge to be, dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free, drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world, derived from the rocky breasts forever, flowing and drawn, and, since our knowledge is historical, flowing and flown. That was at the Fish Houses by Elizabeth Bishop, which was published in the August 9th, 1947 issue of The New Yorker, and it was read there by Robert Pinsky. I notice, hearing it again, she uses the word clear at least three times. Yes. And, I mean, clarity is an astonishingly difficult thing to manage, and she manages it with such aplomb in this poem. It's really quite remarkable. I'll risk making a bishop-like figure of speech. Like the water, it is clarity and depth. It's clear and it's deep. Well, she describes her own poem in the line, cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear yes. along the way. Yes, that's her aesthetic, isn't it? That's it is. Her, it's, it's plainness that has the quality of, I don't know, a javelin or um, an explosion. It's plain, but it does not lack force for being plain. On the contrary, partly I feel like you could read this poem to just about anybody, somebody who is distracted, somebody who didn't much like poetry, and they could feel that force and that it is indeed cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear. It seems to be a poem that's in dialogue somewhat with Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I just, uh, to, particularly in terms of the religious component there, but without any of the fret, as it were. I mean, I love Dover Beach, but there's a feeling of striving about it. Here, there's no striving. And the music, the music is different and the mind is different. I and mean, she makes what many people would be like a pedantic quibble about religion. She sings him Baptist hymns. She also sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is not a Baptist hymn. And uh, <laughs> in many writers, the attempt to distinguish between a Baptist hymn and A Mighty Fortress is Our God would seem fussy. And here, partly because she's singing to a seal, it seems part of the rules, part of the ethic of the poem. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. 
They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Now, in the June 5th, 1989 issue of The New Yorker, we had the privilege of publishing your poem, Shirt, which you're going to read for us now. And I suppose it uh, would not be an overstatement, for me at least, to say that this is a poem that's perhaps somewhat influenced by Bishop in terms of its attentiveness to one detail after another, a poem that's based on the accrual of detail. I can think of two responses to that, Paul. One would be, yes, and the other would be, I hope so. <laughs> so maybe I can ask you about, uh, if, if you recall, something of the background to the poem. What, what set it off? The background is very different from what set it off. Mm-hmm. The background is a lot of reading I had done over the years. There is this famous event, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in 1911, which had an effect on legislation. Alas, not enough. We still have sweatshops. We still have child labor, uh, certainly in the world. Indeed, in this country, the poem was partly set off by reading in the San Francisco Chronicle in the 1980s about uh, terrible conditions, practically slavery conditions in sweatshops in San Francisco. And I like the narrative of the fire and the event of people uh, leaping from that fire. I like that narrative because it may be a lie. It's in the very interesting category of things that may have happened. I also had been reading the left-wing British historian Hobsbawm's book called, I believe, The Invention of Tradition in which he says a lot of things that pretend to be quite ancient, like the regalia and ceremony of the coronation of the queen or king in England, pretends to be ancient, and in fact it's industrial revolution. It's a recent invention, all of that gear and uh, blather. And he has a similar thing about the kilt, which he says was devised when they tried to tame the savage northern Scots, the Highland Scots. These beasts wore robes. 
and the robes would get caught in the machinery of the mill and with body parts, you would lose hours. So they made miniskirts for them. So that's background. What set it off was trying to write quite a different poem about a sculptor, a poem I never wrote. She, when she was a child, her mother did piecework on a sewing machine. And in the course of working on that poem, I started thinking about the beauty of old sewing machines, the treadle, the needle. Oh, the treadle, the needle. What else they have? A bobbin. Then I needed something that would chime with bobbin, the way treadle chimes with needle, the union. And then this other reading came floating back to me. It became much more interesting than the sculptor. This urge to make lists, to engage in litanies, indeed, has an almost uh, spiritual, it certainly in many religious observances, has certainly a religious component. It may be liturgical to me. I had my parents uh, were nominally Orthodox. I went to the Orthodox uh, shul when I was a child. I could chant in Hebrew, understanding almost none of the words that I was chanting, but I was very aware and there was a litany or a list or a catalog. I don't find it absurd that that may have affected my idea of eloquence. Uh, that service is very boring. The Sabbath service is very long and kind of tedious, rather formless. And the one beauty is in the singing and uh, the chanting. And it could be that I, I was clinging to that to keep from uh, absolutely passing out with the uh, the tedium of it. Well, perhaps uh, you would be good enough to chant for us shirt. Shirt, the back, the yoke, the yardage. Lapped seams, the nearly invisible stitches along the collar turned in a sweatshop by Koreans or Malaysians gossiping over tea and noodles on their break or talking money or politics while one fitted this arm piece with its overseam to the band of cuff I button at my wrist. The presser, the cutter, the ringer, the mangle, the needle, the union, the treadle, the bobbin, the code, the infamous blaze at the Triangle Factory in 1911. 146 died in the flames on the ninth floor. No hydrants, no fire escapes. The witness in a building across the street who watched how a young man helped a girl to step up to the windowsill, then held her out away from the masonry wall and let her drop. And then another as if he were helping them up to enter a streetcar, and not eternity. A third, before he dropped her, put her arms around his neck and kissed him. Then he held her into space and dropped her. Almost at once he stepped to the sill himself. His jacket flared and fluttered up from his shirt as he came down, air filling up the legs of his gray trousers like Hart Crane's bedlamite, shrill shirt ballooning. Wonderful how the pattern matches perfectly across the placket and over the twin bar-tacked corners of both pockets like a strict rhyme or a major chord. Prints, plaids, checks, hound's tooth, tattersall, madras, 
the clan tartans invented by mill owners inspired by the hoax of Ashen to control their savage Scottish workers, tamed by a fabricated heraldry. MacGregor, Bailey, McMartin. The kilt devised for workers to wear among the dusty clattering looms. Weavers, carters, spinners, the loader, the docker, the navvy, the planter, the picker, the sorter sweating at her machine in the litter of cotton as slaves in calico headrags sweated in fields. George Herbert, your descendant is a black lady in South Carolina. Her name is Irma, and she inspected my shirt. Its color and fit and feel and its clean smell have satisfied both her and me. We have culled its cost and quality down to the buttons of simulated bone, the buttonholes, the sizing, the facing, the characters printed in black on neckband and tail, the shape, the label, the labor, the color, the shade, the shirt. That was Shirt by Robert Pinsky, read by Robert Pinsky himself. We conscious, as you wrote it, I know this is perhaps an odd question to ask you, but as you were writing it, were you conscious that really you had something quite special on your hands? I think the most honest answer is that it's hard to remember. At some point I felt I was touching something very hot, because so much of economic life and of middle-class life and certainly the United States, probably in the West generally, has to do with clothes, fashion, shopping, retail. And there's that dreamy going shopping quality where we're interested in minute distinctions that would be invisible to someone from another culture, the difference between the elegant handmade shirt and the custom-made shirt and the cheapo ones, really quite unimportant, objectively. And these artifacts, shoe, a shirt, they're so beautiful in the the history and the care that goes into them. I'm always amazed at how they have perfected that thing of having the cap pattern match perfectly over the pocket. And uh, those tiny stitches... A lot of art goes into it. So to, to go back to the somewhat embarrassing question, yes, at some point I felt I was writing about something quite important and quite immediate. One of the ideas that came to mind as I listened to it there again was the fact that when you describe the shirt as a work of art, it's almost as if the shirt as something that is made of the textile is bleeding into the poem that is made of text, both of those words, of course, having to do with weaving and uh, the idea of weaving being one of the ways of thinking about poetry that appealed, for example, to W.B. Yeats, where he writes about his coat and old mythologies. But one of the beauties of this poem, I think, is that you don't actually make anything much of that. I hope it's implicit. I mean, I refer to several poets. I refer to Hart Crane, quote a beautiful line of Hart Crane about a shirt, shrill shirt ballooning. I bring in George Herbert from Left Field. I bring in Ashen, and I'm aware that for many readers, Ashen will just be a sort of a noise or a name. Yes, this is James McPherson. McPherson invented Ashen, and it's such an important... uh, Again, I felt I was near something hot because Ashen 
was angrily, hotly defended against the attacks of rationalists like Samuel Johnson because Ashen was the primitive, untutored, eloquent bard. He was a combination of lead belly, Bob Dylan, and Wordsworth. He was many things. And the shirt, in a way, is a manifestation of civilization, sort of an industrial product, and Ashen represents nostalgia for something earlier. I don't need a reader to think about all that, but certainly Bishop's poem is woven, if ever a poem was. I mean, at the fish houses, weaves a lot of things together, and the texture gets very rich. She does abstain from a sort of overt weaving. She doesn't make any flourish with the shuttle. You just are aware of it. And that's something I admire. You could say it's a hallmark of her modernist qualities. You could also call it classical if you wanted to. Thank you very much indeed, Robert Pinsky, for being with us today. I've enjoyed it a lot, Paul. Shirt by Robert Pinsky, as well as Elizabeth Bishop's poem at the Fish Houses, may be found on newyorker.com. A new edition of Bishop's poetry entitled Poems was published in 2011. Robert Pinsky's latest book is Singing School, Learning to Write and Read Poetry by Studying with the Masters. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine. I'm Paul Muldoon, Poetry Editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, thank you. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of newyorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon.